0: All right. Good morning, church. Thanks for being with us here today on this Palm Sunday. Um, hey, just a little uh, note in, uh, on our announcements. I just want to, again, and as Tom said, just encourage you uh, next Saturday, we just have a really great opportunity. Um, the Easter egg hunt is not simply to provide a service. Like we don't need to make Easter more exciting than it already is. Like the resurrection is more than enough. A little bit of chocolate and an egg doesn't need to bolster that. That's not what next Saturday is about. Next Saturday is an opportunity that we have to get to show love and to serve uh, our neighbors here in this community. And so come, man, come, we're, we're going to start setting up at 10. Wear your rooted shirt talk to people, uh, and just uh, let the community know that they're loved. And uh, we're going to have some invitations next week where folks will uh, will we'll let them know about our Easter service um, and whatnot. And and ultimately, that's what next Saturday is about, is us seeking to serve the community and uh, show the love of Christ and letting the community feel welcomed into what we're doing. Um, but then the other part of that, and we're gathering, we're going to get, something. the really cool part about this is we are Gathering at Humphrey Park to do this, to provide this service alongside the other churches in our neighborhood. Uh, we live in a neighborhood where the churches in Royal Heights have never done anything together, have never uh, collaborated together up until just a couple months ago. The pastors didn't even know each other. And now we have this opportunity to come and side by side saying, We have differences, but. Jesus isn't what's different about us. In Jesus, we're united. And so uh, just getting to to serve together as an expression of the love of Christ to our community is uh, something we desire greatly to do. We are not uh, not the coolest. We're not the hippest church. We're not the primary church. We're just a bunch of nobodies trying to tell everybody about somebody. And we're joined with other churches in doing that. And next weekend, we get to express that together at Humphrey Park at 10 a.m. And as an added bonus... There are going to be a lot of Easter eggs, because we got you guys did way more than 500, so props to you. Uh, this morning, we're going to be and continue in Galatians chapter 4. We're going to continue our Galatians series, and last week, we saw that, that Paul... Kind of gets into this. Uh, to, he 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 wants to express to the church in Galatia that you've been you used to be slaves, like you used to be slaves to the law. Why would you go back to that? You've been made heirs with Christ, and he passionately pleads with them. And he even goes as far as to acknowledge the fact that his tone of voice is stern. He says, "I I wish my tone wasn't like this with you. I wish we were in a different setting." But he wants them to understand what it means that they've been made heirs by the blood of Christ and not by their own works. And so today he's going to continue that, we're still in chapter 4, and he's going to take it to the next step. Like any time you want to call out false teaching and make false teaching clear, at some point the main way to do that is to open the Bible and point people to the truth, and that's what Paul's going to do today. He's going to open up the Old Testament, the scriptures that they would have been familiar with, and for the legalists, he's going to make clear to them that they have misunderstood Abraham and and the scriptures that they hold to in sight. And for those who have been saved by grace and grace alone he's going to remind them of their heritage as children of the promise. And so uh, today we're going to start off in verse 21 and uh, let me pray and then we will do just that. Father, thank you for this day and uh, just for the opportunity to be here together in this building with these people. Uh, lord thank you for your church that you have uh, purchased her not uh, not because she has the funds not because uh, she's worthy but because you are loving and because you are worthy uh, Lord our worship is uh, would it would it be intended to make much of you would our our intent lord this morning our heart this morning our prayer this morning is that you would be made much of lord that uh, that you would be made famous in this community, in this city, uh, more so than you already are, that your name would be glorified um, on, on the tongues of those who don't know you, and maybe those who uh, have, have without knowing it, have long held to righteousness that was theirs and not from you. Um, Lord, I, uh, I pray that you would move our hearts this morning, and uh, that we would find comfort in the truth of your word and in your gospel. I pray these things in your good name. Amen. So Paul starts off this address this morning. He starts off in verses 21. And he says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law. Do you not listen to the law? Like, Paul's starting to get a little frustrated here. You can almost sense a little bit of sarcasm in his voice. Like, so you people who've all of a sudden decided that you're going to be saved by, you were saved by grace initially, but now you're going to be made perfect by the flesh. Let me just clarify that. You people who believe that. Do you not know what the law is? Have you not listened to what I have said, what I taught you about the law? He says... Paul Paul writes directly both to those who have promoted this legalism and those who have succumbed to it. He he writes to those who who desire to be under the law. He's addressing like, you guys, you, you recognize you were saved by the grace of Jesus, but now you think you want to be under the law. Like you've listened, your ears have been tickled by those who have deceived you and make you think that your salvation is something that's about you. And he says, like, he, he wants to make clear, like, if that's where you're at right now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to remind you once again of the disadvantage of that. Now, make no mistake, there are advantages to being under the law. First, you always have the outward certainty of a list of rules to keep. For many of us, we just want that so bad in our lives. Like, there's there's this tendency of our fle- in our flesh, of, we we don't, we don't want to, like, just have to follow Jesus blindly, not knowing where he'll send us, not knowing where he'll ask of us, devoting everything to him. We just want a list of rules. And if I have just a clear outline of rules and expectations, like, that's great. I have control of that. That's tangible. I can do that. But the gospel doesn't, that's not following Jesus at all. Like, Jesus doesn't do that. He just says, leave everything behind and come with me. Like, that's the call of the disciples. He doesn't say where we're going. He doesn't say what you're going to experience. He says, come and follow me. That is far more terrifying when we don't understand the depths than having a list. Like, a list feels tangible. Following Jesus is terrifying. So there's the certainty of the list. Second, you can compliment yourself because you keep the rules better than others do. When you believe that your salvation comes from obedience to the law... You can really have an ego. Like, that would be something to be profoundly proud of if you could actually do it. When you, if you could actually do that, you wouldn't just think you were better than other people. You would legitimately be better than other people. And that would be great. I mean, there would be kudos in that. And finally, you could take this the credit for your own salvation. Because if you could follow the law perfectly, you would have earned it. You would be the equivalent to a taxpayer with rights. What can, God, God can't ask? Can God ask bold things of you when your salvation you have earned yourself? Under the law, when he says under the law, under, being under the law is what you do for it means that what you do for God is what makes you right before him. Under, to be under the grace of God, it becomes what God has done for us in Jesus Christ that makes us right before him. Under the law, the focus is on my performance. Under the grace of God, the focus is on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Under the law, we find fig leaves to cover up our nakedness and shame under the grace of God we, we we are given the covering through the sacrifice that God provided. we're giving a perfect covering of righteousness and it's not just a it's, it's not just a facade but it's a true gift that when the Lord looks upon us he sees Jesus. you see there's one despite the advantages that our flesh tells us about the law there's one big disadvantage and that is that you can't do it you can't do it. Even when you think you can do it, like you're like the layers of your sin, like my obedience to the law when it's motivated by my desire to make something uh, much of something other than Jesus, like even that good act is sinful when my motivation isn't ultimately the fame of Jesus. Like the, it's not just about outward obedience, but also it's about our heart motivation. And when we start getting into the layers of that, it just becomes so obvious to anybody who has any sense. That the law is not something we can keep, and so Paul starts off in this first verse. He wants to remind them that, "Do you not listen to the law? Have you guys not heard me? That to follow the law means you have to be, you have to do it perfectly. There's no, you don't, you can't get an 80 percent. D doesn't stand for diploma when it comes to the law. It's either 100 percent or nothing." Charles Spurgeon uh, said it well this way. He said, "No Christian has any business living under the law." What is God's law now? Is it? It is not above a Christian, it is under a Christian. Some men hold God's law like a rod of terror over Christians and say, if you sin, you will be punished with it. It is not so. The law is under a Christian. It is for him to walk on, to be his guide, his rule, his pattern. Law is the road which guides us, not the road which drives us, nor the spirit which actua- actuates us. Charles Spurgeon is making clear, like, we, we've, we've been elevated above, like the gift of right, like Christ's righteousness. We've been given that. The law now is a path that guides us forward, but it's no longer a slave owner that drives us. Desiring to drive home his point, Paul will now turn to the scriptures. Starting in verse 22, he says this. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. I want to give you just a little bit of backstory on Abraham. Abraham was the biological father of the nation of Israel. That through Abraham, the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, would come forth. But that wasn't always the case. That's not always where we find Abraham. In Genesis 12, Abraham is a childless man in his 80s he's married to Sarah who is in her 70s and she is unable to bear children and it's a grief they've carried all of their days the scripture in Genesis 12 starting in verse 1 says this now the Lord said to Abram go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing I will bless those who bless you And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you will all of the families of the earth be blessed. So Abram went. And the Lord told him and Lot with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarah his wife and Lot his brother's son. And all their possessions that they had gathered. And the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Merah. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. The Lord shows up. He appears to them. And he promises them that they're going to give birth to a son. And that that son's going to father a nation who will bring salvation into the world. This is an extraordinary promise, okay? And it's important to note this. When Abraham and Sarah believed the promise here in Genesis 12, that God would give them a son, they, they didn't get pregnant immediately. That wasn't like an instant promise, okay? There, was, there would be a 15-year gap between when God made the promise that they'd have a son and when Sarah would actually get pregnant. And so that's going to kind of, I, I tell you that to kind of set the framework for where this this plan, this faithfulness is going to dwindle for a moment. This is a, a struggle for, for each of us. That to to, to to believe truly that God who sits outside of time has a plan that is right and good and in perfect timing is a great struggle. Last week I I shared with you uh, our story, our adoption story, and like I I can't imagine, for nine years, like, there was frustration and grief that we felt like God had given us this this call, this tug on our heart, and nothing happened for nine years. I can't, and that, that was as a, that was like being young. I can't imagine to be 80 and 70 years old and to wait 15 years like, God, you promised, but it's been a long time. We're not getting any younger, okay? This is a struggle for us when we pray we have to be a people that pray, trusting that God's faithfulness will be revealed in his time, that he knows the way that we don't. And if our intent is ultimately God's glory above all else, then that puts us in a posture where we're, we're more than willing to wait as long as it takes, knowing that it's ultimately about him. However, like us, being human, Sarah gets impatient. She gets impatient with God's plan. Just imagine the the hope in Sarah, like all these years, she's 75 years old. Her whole life has been this life of, of grieving her barrenness. And then God comes and makes this extraordinary promise. I have to think that, is, that right after that encounter, she's already making plans, man. She's got she's got Abraham painting the nursery within 10 minutes of God making this promise. And all of a sudden, year goes by and year goes by and time goes on, and she gets impatient, believing that maybe God needs some help. So she brings out her household servant Hagar, who is young and beautiful. And she says to Abraham, look, it's, it's clearly not happening with me. So maybe you should have our child with her, okay? It doesn't take a rocket scientist to know this is a terrible idea from every facet imaginable, okay? What, what's the posture of Sarah's heart in this encounter? The truth is like her, her grief has blinded her vision. The grief Grief does that. It's not that she's stopped believing the promise. Like I don't I don't think Sarah got to it doesn't seem she got to a place where she believed God was lying to her. She just came to a place where she she still believed God would give them a son, but she thinks maybe it's on her to make it happen. That maybe ultimately God needs a little push, needs a little help along the way. And that way she's not unlike her mother Eve. Like in the garden we don't see Eve curse God and and take the apple in hopes of just turning her back and wanting nothing to do with him. But it's that Eve began to believe that God's good, but maybe he, he could use my help. Like maybe he's a little off on this one, so maybe my fleshly scheme could ultimately accompany God's plan. And Sarah does the same thing. It's not that she doesn't believe, but she begins to think that maybe it's on her. Maybe it's something that she has to do. So she brings out her beautiful servant to Abraham. And interestingly, much like his father, Adam, Abraham doesn't really counter protest this. He just kind of goes with it, which, to be honest, just to be put it out there, There there probably is some like there seems to be a little more than just a lack of faith that's wrong with Abraham. Like it doesn't take a rocket scientist on Abraham's part to realize this. This seems like it could cause some problems in the long run. Like you would think he would get that, but he doesn't. And shortly thereafter, she gets pregnant by Abraham, and they call their son Ishmael. And Ishmael himself will grow up to father a great nation, but not the nation of promise. And this, Paul says, Paul's point in this and reminding of this them of this, this is exactly what the Galatians are doing when they turn to the law to bring them closer to God. They're attempting to fulfill the promise of God with a scheme of the flesh. He's saying, like, you're, you're you're doing the same thing as Sarah. It's not that these people are outright opposed to God. Like they but they believe in their hearts, they, they love God, but they've determined in their hearts that. God needs a little help from them based off their performance. And so Paul makes this comparison. Like Sarah, they haven't stopped believing God's promise of salvation. They've just become convinced that it's on them to accomplish it. And Paul draws a sharp contrast between real Christianity and legalism. And he he draws that contrast as the contrast between freedom and slavery. One son of Abraham was born of a free woman and one was born by a slave. The real Christian life, the Christian life is marked by freedom, that we've been made free in Christ, that we are no longer under the bondage of sin and death. Ishmael was Abraham's son, but he was the son according to the flesh and unbelief and ultimately trying to make your own way before God was his legacy. It often doesn't look like it, but legalism is living according to the flesh. It denies God's promise and it tries to make your own way to God through the law. This is like this is this is living as a descendant of Abraham, but it is living like Ishmael. Okay, and that's what like Paul wants to drive home to these, to the to the church, to the legalists, to the Judaizers. Like you you, you are constantly claiming you're you're and that you're your, your sons of Abraham. The problem is your followers, like you're descendants of the wrong son. You're not descendants, you're not children of the promise. You're children of, of deception. You're children of trying to be coming convinced that your righteousness is something that comes from you. And there are many sons of Ishmael still today that when when our when the posture of our heart becomes performance-driven, when it, when, I, when my salvation becomes about me and what I do, when my worship is motivated by uh, judging, engaging the posture of what I've done and what I've accomplished, then I fall into that same status. Warren Wearsby, and his commentary on this text, says, Legalism does not mean the setting of spiritual standards. It means worshiping these standards and thinking we are spiritual because we obey them. It also means judging other believers on the basis of these standards. You are either children of the promise or children of the flesh. You're either the younger son or the older. Yesterday I had the privilege to uh, preach to some men in the area um, at a a little breakfast yesterday morning. and, And we talked about the prodigal son. And the truth that the prodigal story of the prodigal son is ultimately about two sons. You have the wayward son who lives life according to the flesh, but the second half of the story is ultimately about the older son. The older son who is, is mortified because he, he believes he's earned something. That he, that just as the younger son tried to dis- manipulate the father through doing whatever he wanted, the older son tried to manipulate the father through being good. Like the older son is left at the end of the story standing outside of the great feast because he earned something. The father he, he, he the father was due to him. That he, the older son in the story, stands outside of the house, believing that he was entitled to something that he earned with his own hands, not recognizing that it all came from the father. He, he didn't want the father, the father's love. He wanted the father's stuff and felt that he had earned it. Those two pictures are, are a very picture of what we're talking about today. The, in the, at the end of the like we, uh, the story of the prodigal son which is not what I'm preaching on today, but just a, a reminder. like We always focus on the younger son, and there's significance in that. But the story ends with the younger son being at the great feast, and the older son is the one that's left standing outside, believing that he had detained something. And the whole purpose of that story is Jesus is preaching it in response to the Pharisees, the very people who believed they had done the same things, the very sons of Ishmael. Spurgeon, again, he says, The better legalist a man is, the more sure he is of being damned. The more holy a man is, if he trusts to his works, the more he may rest assured of his own final rejection and eternal portion with Pharisees. So we know about the child that was born of the slave. But there's another child that was born of a free woman through promise. Abraham's second son was named Isaac, and he was born miraculously by the power of God through Abraham's wife, Sarah, who was free. Isaac was Abraham's son, like Ishmael, but he was the son of God's promise and faith and God's miracle for Abraham. And that takes us, uh, we'll look at verses 24 through 27. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Paul says that, there, that for these are two covenants. In the Bible, a covenant is a, is a contract, a set of rules for our relationship with God. And Paul brought it right down to the issues confronting the Galatian Christians. The legalists wanted them to relate to God under one set of rules. And Paul wants them to relate to God under the gospel. And he's making clear these are not the same. These don't even go together. They're separate. The one from Mount Sinai, he says. One covenant he associates with Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 through 20 is the place where Moses received the law. So one covenant he associates there. This covenant gives birth to bondage since it's all about what we do for God to be accepted by him. It doesn't set us free. It puts us on this perpetual treadmill of having to prove ourselves and trying to earn our favor before God. This covenant is associated with Hagar, the surrogate mother, the slave woman who gave birth to Ishmael. It's a covenant according to the flesh because its it's very roots are in the flesh. This covenant he corresponds, he compares to the Jerusalem which now is, that meaning the earthly Jerusalem, which was the capital of religious Judaism and the place where Christ would rise in right into on Palm Sunday. And we'll we'll touch more on that in just a moment. And he says, he contrasts that with the covenant, with another covenant. He says, but the Jerusalem above. The other covenant is associated with the new Jerusalem. And the new Jerusalem, he's referring to the kingdom of God. He's referring to the perfect city of God that will be, that where one day all who, who are his will ultimately dwell. And this covenant brings freedom. It's free. It's free because it recognizes that Jesus paid the price and that we don't have to pay for it ourselves. And he says, which is this covenant, which is the mother of us all. This covenant has many children It is the mother of us all. Every Christian through the centuries belongs to this covenant, the covenant of the heavenly Jerusalem, not the earthly one. And every birth that takes place under this covenant, just like ultimately Isaac was a birth that resulted from a miracle, every person who is rescued and becomes an heir to the kingdom under the covenant of promise is every bit as much of a miracle as Isaac was. Every birth under this covenant is a miracle and should result in joy, just like the fulfillment of the prophecy that he, the prophecy he reads in verse 27 is from Isaiah 54.1. And he says, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the one who has a husband." Every birth under the new covenant is a miracle. And that's why we celebrate, that's why we pray towards that end, that God might ultimately rescue more and bring more to himself. That there are, we recognize that our heritage is that we are children of the promise. We're children of the covenant of the new Jerusalem. And ultimately, God continues to add to that. And he continued, there, there are more out there in this city and in our neighborhoods who are children of that promise, and they just don't even know it yet. And in verse 28, he says, now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Like, do you guys get it now? He's saying, thats I've painted this picture for you. Your children, like Isaac, you're children of promise. Verse 29, but just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him, who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. Okay, so he's letting the church know and, and it's probably maybe Paul's starting to catch his breath a little bit, even though he's extremely uh, hurt to the heart that that they're being deceived, that like Paul spent a lot of time with the church in Galatia, pounding this into their heads. And then he leaves and now they're sudden they're starting to buy into this different gospel. As much as that hurts his heart, he also acknowledges that this is how it's always been. Okay? He says, just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. We see in the scriptures, I believe, the, the picture he's referring to, we don't know the full scope, but we see that Ishmael ultimately mocked uh, Isaac in the Old Testament. And, and that, that, that the beginning, that, that little root would ultimately grow, and through history, those who cling to righteousness by our own works will always be offended by those who believe that the gospel is the gift of, of God. I, I remember as clear as day it was my second year as a youth pastor in my early 20s where this very nice, he seemed like a very wise older gentleman took me out to breakfast to let me know very clearly. I was welcome to use the facility to we could play dodgeball. you know he didn't have any problem with any of the youth ministry stuff we were doing. But I remember him, I'll never forget him looking me in the face, but don't you be teaching any of that free grace. And he, he left the church shortly after, and uh, I realized that day the weight of what's being spoken about here. Like, if you believe, if you are convinced that your righteousness comes from you, that you have earned that, then how dare anybody believe that they have that without working as hard as you? Like, how, how dare somebody question the validity of that? How could that not be offensive? If you believe that, how could you not be offended by grace? And Ishmael's descendants would become the sworn adversaries of Israel to this very day. Interesting, Muslims around the world proudly proclaim Ishmael as their spiritual father to this day. And Islam is a religion that from start to finish teaches that you're saved by works. Like, it's kind of mind-blowing when you make that connection that of course they do. Like, that started a long time ago. And Paul here is telling us, is telling the church, like, don't be surprised by that. The sons of Ishmael are always going to be offended by the sons of Isaac. Paul predicts that any who rely on obedience to the law will hate those who rely on the promise of grace for salvation. This was the Judaizers in Paul's day. This was the Catholic Church in Luther's day. This is Muslims in our day. And this is legalistic cultural Christians for all days, from the beginning of the church. Anyone who relies on obedience to the law will hate and resent those who rely solely on grace. And that understanding that does two things. One, it equips us to move forward even in the midst of when when we might be spoken ill against. And two, it reminds us here in this place of the mission field that we live in. It is very easy to lose your sense of missional urgency when you live in a city where there's a church on every corner. But I promise you this. That doesn't necessarily relate to, that doesn't necessarily correspond to people who have been rescued by the gospel. There are many people who live in our city who are under the bondage of believing that their righteousness is something that they have earned. And they haven't earned it. They just think they have. And being a missionary means being a missionary to both Both the children of Isaac who just don't know their children of Isaac yet, but also the children of Ishmael who have been deceived. Because, believe me, it's important to note the very author of this letter. The author of this letter was a child of Ishmael to the core, okay? Like, Paul was, I've earned it. Like, sometimes we can feel like that's a lost cause, but the very author of this letter reminds us that it's not. That Paul believes that his 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 righteousness came from his own works, and now he's the one writing this letter. Let us not lose sight the power. Of That's first. That's never happened before. So don't let Sadie play with your problem. The power of the gospel is significant enough that it it, it rescues even them. So don't, don't lose sight of our mission field in there. Because the gospel tells all of those categories. The gospel of grace says all of your striving, all of your zeal, all of your knowledge is meaningless without Christ. You are powerless to do anything that accomplishes your salvation. Salvation belongs to God alone. A gift that you can only receive by faith. And here in the scripture it says, But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him and was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. Ishmael and his descendants persecuted Isaac and his descendants. And so we're we're not surprised when that happens in modern day. The legalists represented by Ishmael have always persecuted true Christianity, represented by Isaac. As we walk in the glory and the freedom and the miraculous power of the promise, of the promise of this new covenant, we should be... We should expect to be mistreated by those who don't. That's just, that's just reality for us. In a commentary by Boise that I, I read on this text, he said, the persecution Christians face will not always be by the world, but also and indeed more often by their half-brothers, the unbelieving but religious people in the nominal church. This is the lesson of history. History. Today, the greatest enemies of the believing church are found among the members of the unbelieving church. the greatest opposition emanating from pulpits and church hierarchies. I'm care- I want to be careful to talk about that because that, that's not, I'm not that's not the norm. like we're, I know I don't say that from a posture of saying everybody else, but there are some. and we can't like that's in here. Like, that's our text today. Paul warns us of that, that there are some. And that to, all too often, when you seek to be faithful in Christ, the greatest opposition you will face are from those who not, aren't, aren't from non-Christians, aren't from atheists, aren't from, it's from those who believe they've attained something on their own. And that's always been the case. In verse 30, uh, nearing the end of our text today, it says this, in verse 30 and 31. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. He says, cast out the bond woman and her son. What is the answer in our heart to, when this struggle comes, when we're faced with this opposition, in our own heart and externally, the answer that he gives the church is we must cast out the, the bondwoman, and her son. What he's saying to them, the point he's driving home, is that law and grace cannot live together as principles for our Christian life, for where our salvation comes from. And this is reflected in our very story today that Hagar and Sarah could not live together in the same house. Genesis 21, 8 through 14 says this, and this is significant, just bear with me. And the child grew and was weaned, And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son. For the son son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to do, do all she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now, there are many layers in this story to Sarah and Abraham's discomfort, okay? Sarah's discomfort isn't all pure. Like, Ishmael is a reminder to Sarah of her unfaithfulness, okay, and of of the sin that took place. And, and there's no doubt that her grief, that her, condom, her condemnation, her desiring him to be removed from her sight and not to share with her son, like that's not all rooted in righteousness. And you see that Abraham, who Abraham feels the shame of sin, that, that this, this is his son, like this is his son. And he can't be with them anymore. And Abraham feels the weight of that because sin causes pain and sin causes grief. And sometimes we we have to lean into that. We can't avoid that. Like the effects of sin and the grief that it causes, like we can't hide from that. That's real here in this circumstance. But God has a greater point in all of this. God's not endorsing the, the feelings that are the result of this sinful act, but he is confirming to Abraham that he has a plan even in the midst of this horrendous event. He tells him, you don't be grieved by this. You do as Sarah is telling you to do. The point is that God tells Abraham to send Hagar away. So also every Christian must send away the idea of relating to God on the principle of the law, the principle of what we do for him instead of what he has done for us in Christ Jesus that in the same way every ounce of that that is in our being is anti gospel and just like God tells like just as God tells him to send her away we are to send that out of our lives i want it's important to note this in this story sarah was fully able to live with hagar and ishmael until the son of the promise was born and then everything changed She'd been living with him. They'd been together all all up to this point. But then the son of promise was born and things changed. Once Isaac was born, then Hagar and Ishmael had to go. In the same way, a person could relate to the law one way before the promise of the gospel was made clear to them in Jesus Christ. But once the truth of the gospel is made clear, the law has to go. It 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 can't be there. We have to cast it out just like the slave woman and her son. The law of the promises, like the, the promise of the law is fully satisfying when you don't know Jesus. When you don't know the gospel, it's very sad. You can be in the midst of it. and It provides some level of comfort, deceptive comfort, but comfort nonetheless. But when you know the gospel, it can't dwell in the same house anymore. And if you can hold to it, live by it, and put your trust in it, then you don't know the gospel. And that's real and, and that's true and that's something uh, that, uh, that that greatly affects not only us checking our own heart but what it means to be missionaries. One cannot be free and be a slave. We cannot be children of both the law and grace. Our hope must be in one covenant because only one of those covenants leads, covenant leads to life. And uh, we desire to live lives that reflect that. I want to close uh, just by... Addressing, like, today is Palm Sunday. This is a day where Christians remember the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem. In Scripture, it's a fairly small story, and it can kind of seem insignificant if you're just reading through. So why do we stop to remember it? Like, why do we acknowledge it in this special way on this day? I want to read the story of Palm Sunday from John 12, verses 12 through 16, and then we'll touch base on it for a moment. It says this, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Coming to Jerusalem was a bold and dangerous statement, and both Jesus and the disciples knew that. This is a, a, this is a key moment in Jesus' ministry. To do that too. And say, Stop. I was afraid that was coming. <laughs> They're extremely uncomfortable by this situation. Uh, in Mark 10, 32 through 34, we see this kind of key point in the ministry of Jesus. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to them, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. They were amazed. And all who followed him were afraid. Because they knew what going to Jerusalem would ultimately mean. Jesus was going to the earthly Jerusalem in order to be to hand himself over to the sons of Ishmael. He was going there to die. He was going there to be resurrected. And he was going there to bring about the first Easter. He was going there so that the children of the promise might be freed from the curse of the law once and for all time. That we the daughters of the, uh, the daughters of Zion might dwell in the new Jerusalem. This morning, today, when we talk about it, we celebrate uh, Palm Sunday. We celebrate the truth that we're children of the promise because of Christ. Because Christ did turn. Because He did go to Jerusalem. Because He did hand Himself over to those who believed their salvation came through something else. That the the wickedness that put Jesus on the cross. Like when, when we read the story. And we're we're just taken aback at at just the level of hate and the violence that Jesus experienced. Like, we have to understand where that came from, okay? Like, that wasn't just an abnormal group of hateful people. It wasn't just all the evil and wicked, disgusting people in the world were gathered in one place and just happened to be there at one time. What you see on the cross is the natural response of one who believes that their salvation is theirs. And then this man comes preaching and evidencing the truth that that's not the case. All of us are they outside of the gospel. The ones that Jesus would ultimately turn himself over is anyone who believes that their righteousness is of their own merit. We, the daughters of Zion, though, we, we we're going to dwell in the better Jerusalem because Jesus came because Jesus turned because He rode into Jerusalem. That on that day, uh, as they sung and they acknowledged Him, uh, they that ultimately they, they probably weren't fully prepared for what was to come, um, but they definitely weren't prepared for what was to come after when the resurrection would take place. And uh, ultimately, through that, through that, we have we, we we get to be and have hope as children of the promise. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, you are good and gracious to us. You are loving and kind. Your love cannot be overcome. It is relentless, and it has just continuously been relentless towards those who are yours. And we thank you for it. Lord, thank you for the good and better covenant that that we get to live under because of Jesus. Thank you for righteousness that comes from him and him alone. Lord, would you convict, remove, call out, um, just squash anything in us that that ever tempts us to believe that our salvation is in anything but you and you alone. Lord, would the law be a path that leads us forward, that leads us uh, to good things, but would it never be uh, our object of worship or our object of righteousness? Lord, would you make that so in our hearts? Lord, thank you that you that you handed yourself over. You didn't have to. We know that. Not one, no, no army in the world, the whole Roman Empire together, Lord, could not have overcome you if it had been your will, uh, but you handed yourself over so that, that ultimately we might be made righteous, that ultimately uh, we would no longer be uh, slaves to the law. Thank you, Lord. Lord, don't let our lives be the same. Don't let us our lives ever look the same as they did before we, we knew that promise of the gospel. Lord, would you make that so? I'm going to pray these things in your good name. Amen.